Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. And we are recording. Bill Sutton is back in the house. Here I am. After, after going up to cold and remote Rochester for the holidays. It feels like cold and remote Rochester here today. Um, yeah, we're, we're trying to uh, replicate the homeland here for you. If you can Thank you. Yeah. So everybody in good spirits today? Good spirits. Wow. <laughs> I mean, good spirits. Today. Sometimes I just feel like I'm doing a monologue here. I mean, just beyond. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I just, I, you know, me with the holidays. I'm just, uh, I, it's weird because I look forward to it so much. And then when you're in the middle of it, it just rushes past you. Right. You got to take some time and realize that this is it. This is what you look forward to all year. Yeah. Um, and try and enjoy it. I think they've done studies about how the anticipation of an event is like the height of it. And then once you actually yeah. do it, it's sort of, which is pretty relevant to what we're going to be speaking about today. But first of all, we'll do our introductions. Um, back with us again is Bill Sutton. Hey, Bill. Hey, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. And Brendan J. O'Reilly, who will, within a very short amount of time, will become a father for the first time. Hooray. Hey, Any minute now. Oh, you look so calm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brendan. I'm the features editor. And Joe Shaw is back with us again in his lumberjack attire. Good to see you. Yes, yes, because it's nice and cozy and warm. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor, and I'm as excited about Brendan's baby as he is, I think. Maybe more so. Yeah, yeah arrival of a baby is one expectation that lives up to it, um, to the the actual reality of it for the next, you know, 25 years. So you have a lot to look forward to. And I'm Annette Hinkle, and I'm the Arts and Living Editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us today is Jean Behrens. And Jean is the Adult Bereavement Coordinator at East End Hospice in West Hampton Beach. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so um, we thought it would be interesting to have Jean on because Michelle Trowering, who could not be with us on the podcast today, um, wrote, a, wrote a story with Jean just about coping with grief in the holidays. Um, so I think, you know, what we were talking about, the whole idea of expectations and letdowns is always a big part of it. And, and also, let's be honest, you know, the, the hallmark quality of all of the commercials and people getting Lexuses under their trees and, you know, everybody's supposed to be in the snow having fun. But if you've lost somebody, especially the first holiday after a loss, it can be really, really traumatic. Um, so Jean, I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your background and sort of how you got into this line of work and what you've learned, because you've been doing this for decades, right? Yes, I, sometimes I can't believe it, um, how long, but yes, I've been doing this for over 30 years now. Um, and I was not originally a social worker. I started out um, in marketing. Uh, I was, I had a psychology degree, but I was in marketing and worked in Manhattan and, um, my brother died and it was, I just didn't expect it. I, we knew he was very sick, but I didn't think we, I just didn't think he would die. And after it happened, I just didn't think what I was doing was 
what I was supposed to be doing. Not that it wasn't because it's important. I think everybody's job is important. Um, I just didn't think it was what I was supposed to be doing. So um, I took a little time and I decided to go back to school and uh, ended up was going to get a, a um, PhD in psych and then spoke to a very wise professor at Stony Brook who told me, listen, for what you want to do, you should just get your master's in social work and hit the ground running. So I did. And um, it's sort of like just went from there. But his death, my brother's death, his name was Jay, um, was what propelled me into this work. And I, my very first job out of uh, grad school was East End Hospice. And it was very funny because I had no hospice experience and I went on a different interview um, and at Good Samaritan Hospital. And the person said to me, you know, you have the perfect background, personality, maturity to do hospice work, but I don't, I don't have the time to train you, but there, I think maybe East End Hospice might. So she sent my resume to East End Hospice and I got that job and I didn't even know truly what hospice work was. So I ended up working at East End Hospice only for six months at that point, and then um, worked at what's now Hospice Care Network for 10 years um, in their children's bereavement program, because that's what I really wanted to do, and have been in bereavement ever since. So it's just been this long journey of, and private practice the whole time. So I've been bereavement this entire time and it's different hospices. It was Hospice Care Network. It was Hospice of the South Shore, then Hospice Care Network. Um, Brookhaven, I've done per diem work for them for years. So I just kind of know all the players on Long Island and the bereavement um, piece is the consistency and an amazing group of people in it. And most of us have come into this work because of what we've been through and what we want to be able to help people to do. So when you say children's bereavement, I was curious, does that mean children who have lost a, a family member or parents who have yes. lost a child? So you mean children who are working through that? Because you had, there was the Camp Good Grief. I know that, that um, you know, where children who've lost um, somebody in their family can go and bond with other kids because it's a very unique experience, you know? And um, I, you've probably found that it, it's really important that people People want to surround themselves with others who've been through a very similar experience yes. when they lose something. At East End, um, so what ended up happening is I kind of came full circle and came back to East End and, and now run their adult bereavement program um, and work very closely with, we have a bereavement staff and Angela Burns is the uh, children's bereavement coordinator and we work very closely together and she's, you know, in charge of Camp Good Grief and you know, we work with the kids for that. But what the adult program is doing is, you know, um, we try to put people together into groups that someone, people who've lost children, people who've lost parents, yeah. people, you know, it, 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 we, I feel like the loss of a spouse is, a, is a significant loss that should be grieved with other people who've lost spouses the loss of a child, the same. Um, there are other losses that can be done in a group that don't have to be loss specific, but I think those particular ones should be. Um, and the trauma of some of the losses, like we've had a great number of drug overdoses and suicides in the last two years, 
those are losses that we try, if we can, put people together. Are those losses directly related to COVID, do you think, in the last two years? You know, it's been, we've been, we try to kind of call that out, but it's hard to know. But I do believe in my heart of hearts that, yes, I think that there's been a, um, a greater number of suicides and a greater number of people kind of giving up on maybe their sobriety because of COVID. Um, and that may have led to an overdose or a, an accidental overdose. You know, uh, I don't know for sure, but I, I do think so in my heart of hearts, I do think so. You know, you, you said something in the story um, that Michelle wrote that I thought was really fascinating that, that we're two years into the pandemic now and that this holiday season is probably different. Uh, people who are going through the stresses of mourning in, in, in the holidays, you, you're doing it, it with a different, we, we are in more of, I think you said we're in more of a malaise now and that it's a combination of frustration and anger, but it's also that those, those emotions are all heightened. So we also feel really immensely great, grateful for what we have, but all of that is just a powder keg, I'm thinking for a lot of people. It's just everything is heightened because of the pandemic being in its second year and everybody's just kind of exhausted now. Yes, that's absolutely happening. And people are like always in in regular times, if you want to call it that, um, every bereavement counselor will tell you that they hear from people, oh, I feel like, you know, I'm going crazy. And they'll use the word crazy. I'm going crazy. I feel like I'm going crazy. Or they won't say it, but they'll say things around it. And then I'll say to them, you feel like you're losing your mind. And they'll they say, yeah, I do. Um, but they don't want to say it because they think I'm going to send them, you know, to Stony Brook or something. So you know, I if I say it, it's OK. But so that I'll say to them, like, that's normal. That's a normal part of grief where you, you start to feel like my brain can't hold all of this. So with the COVID entire dynamics of what we've been through with COVID and the losses and the people that weren't able to be with their family members in the hospital when they were dying. You know, sometimes it was someone's child that was in the hospital, you know, an adult child say that they couldn't, they just weren't able to go in. They tried everything. I mean, as a parent, you think like, I, I, I don't know, I think I'd be arrested. I, I, you know, I don't know. But the things that people are going through mentally this year are very different because of all of what they've been through already in the last two years. So they do feel like kind of like I'm kind of losing it. But once they start talking about it, that's why groups are so great is because they start to talk about it. And then they they end up cracking each other up about like they almost like one up each other on who's crazier, which I love, you know, it's like, oh, my God, you know what I did yesterday or, you know, what I was thinking. And you just like and they they make each other laugh so hard. And then they say, I can't believe it, that this is actually what's coming out of my mouth. But that's why they need to do this. To I feel like people need to do this together, like staying alone when you're going through all of that, all of those different scenarios in your own mind and in your own heart it does drive you a little bit crazy 
So I'm curious when you, do you group people according to maybe how long ago their loss was? Because I find that the first year of a loss, you're in a much different place than you are in year two, three, or four. And that I, I wonder if, you know, when, when groups of people sort of come together over loss, do they tend to stick together over time as the years go on? Or is it pretty much a need that they really sort of explore earlier to when the loss is? Um, primarily, we are losses like a lot of our um groups come together because of our hospice mm -hmm. patient family members so they will get they get um invitations from us through our system at a certain amount of time after like we we send out like we call people a month after the loss two months after and six months after but at the third month they get an invitation to a group so they can they can call us and say, I, I think I'm ready for a group or I want to talk about it or whatever. So if it's a spouse, then we'll just, you know, we'll put them in their groups. And so they're at a time frame about the same. So that kind of works out well for them. But then there are people from the community that are calling. And sometimes it is two years or three years. I have one woman right now who it's five years, but her words are that she was in denial. She lost her daughter and she was in denial, really. She said, I, I, I knew she wasn't here, but I wasn't confronting really what happened or where she was. So um, she was just sort of stepping into the real grief. So she was in the group with people that might've lost someone within the last year. So it, it varies, but a lot of the time it's people around the same time frame. Keen, I'm curious, when your brother Jay died, did you take advantage of bereavement, bereavement counseling? Was that sort of, was that a time when you sort of got a taste for what counseling can do in that circumstance or did did your interest in it come out of your own bereavement and I'm just curious whether you had any of those kind of services well I went to counseling three weeks after he died because I thought I was just going to lose my mind because he was my friend as well so it was like I couldn't imagine how I was going to go on without him in this world I just didn't know how that would work or look so I went to counseling and I remember my therapist said to me, she's taking like the paperwork and she's like, so how long ago did your brother die? And I said, three weeks. And she just looked at me like, oh, like she knew she had like a job ahead of her, you know, because it was only three weeks. But no, I didn't. I wasn't a social worker. I didn't really know much about it. Um, I learned about it through this. And genuinely what happened um, is that the hospital that he died in prepared us not one bit for mm. his death, one bit. Um, there was, they were absolutely vacant. The sicker he got, the less people we saw. So for me, it was like a mission then. It was like, I'm never going to let anybody go through that if I can help it, because that was horrible. You know, what they did to us, I almost felt like it was criminal what they did to my family. And so it, this came out of like a passion. Yeah, I find that there's there's like a big, a big fear 
you know, people are really nervous to talk about death. And I think they start backing out of the room I have found um, in that case. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, people who haven't been through a loss, when they see somebody, they kind of try to avoid it. And they don't, a lot of times people don't want to talk about it, you know, thinking that they're going to trigger the person to cry, but they don't understand that the person really wants to talk about the person that they've lost. And I think that's sort of an interesting dynamic, the whole idea of let's be happy, let's avoid it. We don't want to talk about anything that's a downer, but believe me, the people that have lost somebody have not forgotten it because you're trying to be very happy with them and things like that. Right. I was actually at last night, I was on a session with somebody over zoom and we were absolutely crying, laughing over some of the things that people have been saying to her. And she started out, she was really upset and she was crying and she was saying like genuinely crying. And she was like, so mad. And she was saying, she's like, she's saying it to me. I was starting to giggle a little bit. And she was like, she's looking at me and she, I know her well, so I wouldn't have done that normally. But, um, and, and then she started to talk about some of the other things. And then I started just to add a few to it. Like, what about this one? And then she just, then she lost it and she started to cry laughing. And then she was laughing so hard. And she said, you know, I haven't laughed this hard since my mom was here. And her mom was the person that died. And she said, I had no idea how much I needed to laugh. What were you laughing at is just how clueless people can be. Is that what it is? Yes. The things like, you know, that people say, like, I think I had some of it right here. But yeah, some of the things people say, like, you know, she said, if I hear, you know, the one up there in a better place one more time, she said, I'm just going to slap somebody. She said, I'm mm. sure, I know. But what about me? Yeah. I'm not in a better place. I miss her. I want her here. I don't care. She's in a better place. That doesn't help me, you know. Um, but just all of those types of things like, you know, oh, you're not crying all the time. So you must you're, you're better now stuff like that or yeah there's there's like a fear of tears you know yeah what should you say to somebody i i, I mean because that's always a challenge for me and i what i've found is and and i mean i'm gonna be potentially facing this because i have very good friends who suffered a terrible loss due to covid um and and if i get to talk to them i have no idea what to even say to them what what should i how do i approach that i think one of the coolest things people can do or say is if you have like a close relationship with the people and the person that died like if you have something about the person a story about the person or your favorite kind of um characteristic about that person to say it to them because even though they know it it's so nice to hear you know like I loved his laugh, or, you know, he always had a way of making me feel like I was the only person in the room or, you know, what, you know, loved hearing about his adventures, something like that, like just to tell them that you enjoy. That the, the memories of their, of their loved ones are, are, are going to carry on. I think that tells them, right. It, it's, you know, we're going to remember this person for these, you know, these traits or characteristics or whatever. And it just shows that, that they live on. Yeah. And like, I don't know if you'll, if you know this story, but blah, 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 because sometimes people don't, especially I find like people whose children have died and their friends come over to talk to the parents. They have all kinds of stories that the parents don't know and they love hearing them. It's almost like having a, you know, like a, like a letter from 
from beyond in a way when you find out an aspect of them that wasn't part of your life with them yeah and I think they, they also want to know that they're going to live on in other people's minds and memories and when people come in and act as if they haven't died then it's sort of like you're negating their existence in a way maybe I think that's what people are most fearful of is that if you don't if no one talks about them it's like they were never here and that that's the worst feeling in the world you know Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Raro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. In Michelle's story, I think she talks about the first, um, I guess, the first family gathering for you. Was it after your one of your relatives? Maybe was it your father had died? My dad. My dad died very suddenly, um, December thirteenth. So the following Thanksgiving, the first Thanksgiving we had without him, I thought, well, you know, and I was brand new social worker, I think, brand new. So I was just going to be like all about it and have like my family. We're going to say like nice things about my dad and have like nice little ceremony or something at the table. And my brothers were like, oh, my God, like, are you kidding me? Like, and my mom was just kind of like sitting there, like stunned and not, you know, and it, but it did. It taught me a lot because it really not everybody's in that headspace. I need to find my own way to remember them. And like I can do that with my family now but I to put that on my siblings and my uh extended family you know it wasn't right for them have to find your own space so it wasn't it wasn't so much the timing it was more just the the group and they weren't used to emoting about things like that is that what you mean oh they were not no yeah that's interesting. I'm Irish and Italian. Yeah. Man. Well, that's the thing. It's like, we grew up with that. My dad died when I was 17 and I remember we weren't allowed to tell anybody that, you know, he'd had some, a like, couple breakdowns and it was, you know, not in good shape. And it was like, you know, don't talk about it. Don't, you know, don't mention what's wrong with him. You know, that whole 60s, 70s mentality of just everything's great. You know, this, this happy, family existence. And I think that's part of the problem around Christmas too, because everybody expects the, you know, courier and Ives view. Yes. The picture. Um, and so many of us grew up not allowed to really talk about this kind of stuff. Right. You know? We do, um, volunteer training twice a year and always in our volunteer training, when we talk about, we do like a loss history with the volunteers and there's always someone, and it's not necessarily someone in their 50s and 60s. It could be someone in their 40s that says, my family just, you know, my aunt died when I was 10, and we're, we were never allowed to talk about her again. My uncle doesn't bring her up. My my cousins act like she never existed. It's bizarre, but no one talks about her. It's somebody. 
Gene, when COVID came and the world moved on to Zoom, what did that mean for bereavement counseling and for bereavement therapy groups, group therapy? Is it as effective to be on Zoom? Are there ways that it's better because it's more accessible to people? You know, it is a mixed bag um, because initially I thought like um, Angela Burns and I run, you know, the, I do the adult, like I said, and she's in the children's room and she, we run the department a lot together and I think we were on the phone at least 10 times a day initially because we were home and trying to figure out like how we were going to do this. And I didn't know anything about zoom. I didn't know anything about, I mean, I'm, you know, I was not, I'm not that savvy computer wise. It was just like, uh Oh, so, you know, we were just trying to figure it out, but in some ways it worked out well in that, yes, we could see people, from other parts of like, there were people, family members from other parts of the country. Like they may have had someone die on hospice, you know, um, but they live in Colorado, um, but they could then come to a group because we were on Zoom or someone in Florida who lives in Florida part of the year, they could come to the group because we're on Zoom. So that was helpful. Um, I think individual sessions were a bit harder on Zoom initially, um, because people were just accustomed to seeing us in person, but we acclimated and it we did, you know, our statistics are pretty much the same. We saw the same number, if not more people throughout COVID than we did in the past. So we kind of just, you know, moved on to that. You know, one thing that's recurred during COVID is there's people who've refused to get vaccinated and then they end up getting sick and they end up dying and people resent them for it. And I'm imagining even before COVID, you have situations where there's resentment towards a person who died for the decisions that they made. Uh, and I'm curious how the bereavement counseling community approaches those situations. Like in what way? What do you, I'm not sure. When you lose a loved one, Generally, the emotion that comes up is um, feeling that loss and they're no longer in your life. But what about when you lose someone and you're mad at that person because they didn't do everything they could have uh, to still be with you? Mm. That's that is a hard one. That's something that a lot of times when that comes up, we do try to work with people um, if they're just in a group we try to work with them individually as well because that's a complicated grieving situation um and that's it's not uncommon you know and there are a lot of people that are mad at people people get mad at people that died just because they died anyway you know it's just like a lot of people will say no i'm not mad i'm not mad and then like two weeks later they're like furious um and there's no it's it's not rational you know, it's just part of the grieving. It's like, how could you leave me? They didn't do it on purpose, but how could you leave me? Um, but people that left, you know, it happens with drug overdoses. It, it, you know, it happens. And you're right. Like, it's going to happen with people that are unvaccinated that get sick. There, there are going to be complications to that. So what we try to do with people like that, or what I try to do, is I try to work with them through the eyes of compassion because we can't change 
we can't change the decisions that other people have made and the choices that they've made. Yet us being angry about it continuously is really bad for, it's bad for our health, it's bad for our mental health, and it doesn't help you move ahead in your life to get where you want to go, you know, emotionally. So through the eyes of compassion, I try to work with, can you, can you try at least to see their limitations? Because oftentimes if you look at someone who has made these decisions, you can go back and you can see how they would have made them. Or you can see it's not a surprise that they would have made them. And then you can look at it more through the eyes of, of that person, as opposed to through your eyes, because through our eyes, it's a judgment. When you, when you have anger mixed with grief, Gene, is it best to feel that anger and, and work through it? Or I mean, what, how do you approach it as a counselor? Is it, about, is it about limiting that anger or is it about sort of embracing that anger and getting through it? How do, you, how, do you, how do you fold that into the mix of trying to recover from a loss? I lo- always look at it from like uh, the pre-death anger. Like if this is an angry person and if they, this is their go-to is anger, I'm not going to encourage it because it's, you know, that's just their coping and that's not healthy. But if it's a person who's genuinely not an angry person and they're very angry, I am going to encourage to get that anger out and to figure out ways to get it out. Like I had one woman in, I do, we do groups at Spirits Promise, uh, horse rescue in Riverhead for the more traumatic losses, like the loss of a child was the last one. We just finished one uh, last week. And one of the women in that group was so angry and she's not an angry person. I've, I've known her before this, like doing individual work with her, but she, her anger hit her very hard. And she was answering a question, I think it was two weeks ago, and she was so angry. And I was like, oh my goodness, like in my head, I was like, this is new. And I just encouraged her to say it like what is it you know like just say it and she really went into it and was so kind of almost surprised at herself and then started to cry and said I can't believe I can't believe how angry I am you know and it was in getting it out that she actually felt how angry she was and I think that's important but it's important to do it you know, in a safe atmosphere. And she was able to do it there because it was this group of women that were working together for all these weeks. Um, but I do think it's important to get it out, but if not, if it's a person who's in, whose anger is go-to always. Yeah, I think sometimes the anger is uh, masking another emotion underneath too, like regret. I think regret's probably a big one, you know, when people feel like they didn't do something right or they allowed something someone to be in a situation that maybe led to their death. Um, and I think anger is sort of the surface emotion for what there's something underneath it. So getting, you know, breaking through that anger to really figure out that emotion, I think is a big part of the process. And I also think that like to what Brendan was asking is that I think, you know, and, and some people disagree with me on this, but I think that people you're entitled to it. Like if you're angry with someone for their choices, you're entitled to that. Like, you can be angry. It's okay. You know, like left, you know, and they left you. Sometimes they've left people with like a big mess 
and or a mixed bag of a mess and they you're allowed to be angry but at some point you have to let the anger go i think that happens through the eyes of compassion i think brendan touched on it i, I you know and this is something that that i and my little circle of friends is going through because a family member of one of our friends uh their son who was in his 20s died of covid and this was a family that wasn't vaccinated and was sort of passionate about not being vaccinated and the rest of my friends were we were all sort of horrified by it and tried to tried to convince them otherwise but um, and now they suffered the worst possible loss you can suffer. And so in the midst of my grief for them and my, and my absolute compassion for them, there is this undercurrent of anger too. Like, you know, how could you let that happen? And it, it just complicates the grieving process so much. It, it's, yes. it's, it makes it political. Yeah, it's just, I've never felt such a weird mix of, of emotions upon such a tragic such tragic news the the mix of emotions is is and I, and I think that that as Brendan said I think that's happening with a lot of families uh and I, I think it's probably you know because of we are into the the pandemic enough now with vaccines that it is an option and, and that just adds a layer it does and I think that's going to unfold and unfold and unfold like that we haven't seen as much of but we're going to, yeah, because it's it seems to be rising again, you know, the deaths. So I, I think that that's going to start with the unvaccinated and those are going to be some of the deaths. So that grief is still coming. It's still unfolding. I, I thought it was interesting in Michelle's story. And if you wanted to talk a little bit, Jean, about about the holidays in particular and kind of altering your traditions and what you would normally do. I think that's the really hard thing is that the holidays are so about traditions and doing everything the exact same way that you always did it. And especially that first year after you've lost somebody that can feel really, really overwhelming to, to do everything as you always have, but have that person missing. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the coping strategies for people to get through the holidays, especially the first holiday, which, you know, feels like the worst for most, I would think. Um, yes, we always encourage people to um, kind of simplify things, like make it, do what you can, feel like you can do. If you don't want to do any of the things that you normally did, then don't do them. But um, like I had was saying that I think it's important to first of all, to honor the person, but also to honor yourself, like not at your own expense. Like if you feel like you can't do, some people are, they get like hell bent the first year to do everything the way that they always did it. And they just practically like kill themselves emotionally in doing that. And it's just not, uh, I just don't think that's a healthy way to go. feels like it would emphasize the loss. You know, it just sort of un underscores the loss. It's not a normal it's you try to get some normalcy, but it's not normal. Right. And it's every single place that they were is what you're looking at or every single element that they touch you're touching, you know, so it's just really not, it's not the easiest way to go. Some people um, do things like they leave their ornaments. It depends who it was that died, but if it's a day to day person that would have been doing everything with them, they'll leave all their ornaments in the boxes. 
And if they are going to put up a tree, it's a different tree and they'll get new ornaments for that year. Like one woman I know, she just put up, she bought all new ornaments and said she just put them all up. And she she's like, I, I didn't really care. I just put them up. I just did it. I just wanted something there because she had um, grandkids. But she said, I just needed to do something. But she knew she couldn't touch those ornaments um, because that would have killed her. So, you know, people do variations of things. But again, I think it's important to talk about it with somebody, like not to just let it spin in your head through it with somebody like make a plan like all right um christmas day like what the norm was what do you feel like you can do make the plan but if you if you can't keep the plan or if you feel like you need to leave the plan early like i i said in the article and i say it all the time to people drive your own car wherever you're going don't get stuck places um and don't worry about like the irish goodbye like just Sometimes you just have to leave places, you know, you're just not having the time that you were hoping for or that you're realizing that your heart is just broken and it's not going to, this isn't helping, Um, that you just kind of mosey on off and find your coat and leave. That's okay. You know, you have a pass this year and people need to take the pass. There's nothing worse than when somebody has like a terrible loss and they just try to get right back into things and pretend that it didn't happen because the rest of the world is going to be like, look at her. She's so strong. She's doing it. You know, look at her. And in the meantime, you're dying inside. But by the time six months goes by, no one's going to give you that pass again. So take it now. I was just going to, I just following along those lines, the uh, just the cognitive dissonance of, of the holiday season and, and if you've suffered a loss and you're grieving, uh, it's so much worse when you feel like you're so out of step with the world around you, which is all about happiness and gratitude and, and feeling good and, and coming together with the people who are around you. And you have this great empty feeling. Uh, I just feel like that cognitive dissonance at the holidays makes it all so much worse. I mean, it's, it's difficult any time of the year to deal with a loss, but nothing like the holiday season. I think what I had said to Michelle is that it, it's this year, it started in September, but like, I, I always think about like in my private practice, I had, my office was in Belport and I think about like exactly where my couch was and everything. And people would sit right on the couch and it would start in October and I would start to hear it. And I would think, Oh, here we go. People would start to talk about the holidays and I would think, Oh, all right. So it's October and Thanksgiving is coming. And they start to talk about family members and things that would happen. But this year it started in September and it was like a dread, you know, um, an absolute dread for so many people. And I think there, there is that sense of like, just wanting to, they, so many people said it, they just want to bypass. They just want to bypass the whole holiday season the, the, you know, one woman said to me, I couldn't believe it. She said, I actually went to the mall and I don't know what was wrong with me. I don't know what made me think I could go to the mall. <laughs> she just, you know, because it, she said it was just bursting with Christmas. Um, and it was way too painful. Like you have to, you have to think hard about what you're going to do and you don't, really have to do anything, but you should have plans. 
you know, small plans, but plans, whether it's to go for a walk on the beach with somebody or, you know, just be you through the holidays is what I always encourage people. Find the things that make you feel like you and just try to do them through the holidays because yes, there is that cognitive dissonance. It's horrible when you're grieving a terrible loss because it's what you're living in the pain all the time. It's like you wake up with it, you go to bed with it, you know, your body takes it on. So you, you want to just be you in the best way that you can. And sometimes that's just, I'm, you know, I'm not going to put up a tree this year, or I'm not going to go like, you know, one lady I was talking to, she's always like, she's a big church goer and she's mad at God and she's not going to church. And she's saying it like with this attitude. And I was like, good for you. So don't go to church. You'll go back when you want to go back, but it's just find find what works for you in your heart. Because I think what happens is people look at the outside world and they try to look at like what it should be. What, what should this look like? What should I look like? What should my attitude be? And that's nonsense. It's like you, you get to be who you get to be this year, you know, just be it and let it you know, let the days go by and some days are going to be better than others. That's all. So the hospice used to do, uh, did they, in December, wouldn't they do like the tree of hope or a a ceremony like that, where people could um, write remembrances to people they have, have lost. Is that, was that, um, that went on for a number of years, right? Is that still a tradition that's going on? Yeah, we had it last weekend. We had, um, uh, we had the one in, we had ours at West Hampton beach. Um, It's where we read the names of the, people that have died over the last year. And then we put the ornaments on the trees in the park by the gazebo and the family members come. We had so many people there um, that we ran out of programs. I was really surprised um, how many people came out. It was beautiful, but we have it in West Hampton, Kutchog, Shelter Island. And I'm not sure, I think Bridgehampton. I think you used to do it in East Hampton, but I'm not sure that they do that there anymore, right? East Hampton? A while ago. I don't know if it's still happening there. Though. I think maybe East Hampton. I was Bridgehampton, but I think East Hampton. But yeah, we have it several locations and it's it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. Chrissy McNee is our uh, development person that does that and she does a beautiful job. It's interesting that you call it the tree of hope um, rather than the tree of remembrance or the tree of sorrow. They actually call it the tree of light. Yeah, don't, ah. don't listen to me because I was just going on my very Don't listen memory. to her. Don't listen to her. <laughs> Although if you need to change the name, I'll let you have permission to use the tree of hope. Don't listen to her, Joe. <laughs> tree of not. lights is nice. That's that that's uh that's uh I mean that makes a lot of sense to me because um the, those those are people who are lights in your life and and uh that makes a lot of sense. It's so sweet because what and this year was really nice because a lot of the you know, all of our groups were on Zoom except for the um the equine groups. So the people that were on Zoom with each other decided to come to the Tree of Lights and they met there in person. So they got to see each other and they, um, the trees are all covered with all these ornaments and they go and they find the names of their loved ones and take them down and, and then they take them home. And then we, you know, we read them and then there's uh, some there's a, they sing, there's some groups that come and sing, and then there's some speeches made and stuff. It's a very nice uh, remembrance. It really is. But it's nice. It was nice to see the people from the groups meet each other in person. That's great. That's really neat. Yeah. 
any final advice for people? Just uh, you've sort of given it though, right? Drive your own car. Drive your own car. I'm a big proponent of the Irish goodbye. I like that. Tell people what the Irish go- goodbye is, by the way. And that's just silently slipping out the back without saying goodbye. Yeah, right? that, that means just slipping out without making a big production out of it. It's hysterical. I never knew about it. Like, I never knew there was a word for that. <laughs> Italian and Irish. So, like, the Italian side, you're saying goodbye for 75 years. Right. You never, never say goodbye. And then, you know, the Irish, it's like, oh, where did she go? I was like, right. I don't know. <laughs> We're just going to end. <laughs> but I think that's what's also interesting. It's like the holidays can be hard for people that are introverts, yes. too. You know, like, you know, that whole idea of being forced socialization and... I don't know. I think the Irish goodbye works for a lot of reasons. Oh, it's so great. I think it's perfect for all occasions. So we're not going to say anything. We're just going to, we're just going to turn this podcast off. Hey, where'd they go? That's a good ending. I like that. The Irish goodbye. (laughs) 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.